you know of any other nation on the face of the earth that some American president and the United Nations will gather to discuss peace in the Middle East? It's not by accident. It's because the hand of a sovereign God who used the Hebrew people to bring in the first coming, he is going to use the Hebrew people to bring in the second coming. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in our study of the Revelation. We find these horsemen introduced in chapter 6 as Jesus begins to unravel a seven-sealed scroll that lists a series of judgments on the world following the rapture of the church. This time of judgment, known as the tribulation, will be used by God for two purposes. One, to bring Jews to faith in Jesus, and secondly, to give the rest of the world one last chance to come to faith in Christ. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy talks about the dark days ahead following the removal of Christians from the world. Things will change after the church is gone. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. When the church is removed, that light will turn into darkness. You are the salt of the earth. The church, even in its weak state today, still preserves righteousness. But when the church is gone, decay is going to set in. And the Holy Spirit's going to lift his restraining hand, as we're going to see in the revelation, off of this world. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He uses the word nation. We get our word ethnicity from it. He's talking about race wars across the planet, kingdom against kingdom. He's talking about geopolitical boundaries, different nations of the world in that respect. Add to that, there will be no mothers, no fathers praying for their sons and daughters as they go off to war. There'll be no chaplains in the foxholes pleading with men to receive Yeshua, In fact, most of the people who are converted in that day, John will reveal in this book, are slaughtered almost as soon as they believe. This is a time of war, fought without God, without Christ, without any hope at all. It is a terrible, heinous time, and millions and millions of soldiers, John will reveal, will go from a time of tribulation wrath into a time of eternal wrath. Now, when the red horse comes, peace is taken from the world. And one of the battles that God highlights is a battle found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I mentioned it briefly last week, and I got all these questions, even on the Bible line. You know, tell me about the battle of Gog and Magog. You should write out in the margin next to verse 4, 38 and 39. Now, these first two horsemen, as this chart reveals, bring it up, they come again in the first half of the tribulation. The first six seals all happen in the first half of the tribulation. Remember, it's divided into two halves, both by Daniel the prophet and by uh, Jesus and by John the revelator. The first half is three and a half years, and in this time frame, the battle of Gog and Magog will take place. So let me take a moment and at least comment on this, because it is an important battle, and it's interesting that God highlights this one particular battle. It's a regional battle. It's a Middle Eastern battle, but if you can understand the logistics of it, 
You will see all that much more of how God is setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. Because, of course, the normal question to ask is if the beast, the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, comes and makes this peace covenant with Israel, then what on earth has happened such that peace is taken from the earth? Seems rather short-lived. Or what takes place is a battle to start with in the Middle East. Now, he comes on a white horse, and I suppose as the great imitator, as the great man of peace, he'll be given a noble prize. But his his prize will not last. His peace will not endure. And most peace treaties in the world have not. After World War I, we had the League of Nations. But of course, that failed. After World War II, we developed the United Nations, and they have repeatedly, decade after decade, failed to keep peace. And even though the Antichrist has brokered peace with Israel that will last for a matter of months, those who hate Israel, who do not want the Jewish people to breathe God's air, will go against Israel here in the Middle East. This is often referred to as the Russian Islamic evasion, or more carefully, biblically, to the battle of Gog and Magog. And again, it's an important chapter, chapters 38 and 39. Now, we're going to see, and I'll show you in a moment, there are three major battles that take place in this seven-year period. There's the battle of Gog and Magog that is associated with the Red Horse, during the time when peace is removed from the world. And I'll show you why we know that in a moment. There's the battle (coughs) at the end of the seven years called the Battle of Armageddon. That happens right before the second coming of Christ. And then there's an attempted battle at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. You say, why should I even care? Well, I'm going to show you why you care about it. But before we do that, let me just parenthetically make a statement here. Sometimes I get asked the question, Why does God use all these weird names like Gog and Magog? You know, uh, why can't he just name the country? Well, there's a number of reasons. Sometimes God makes prophecies of a geographical area ever before that geographical area assumes a given name. Now, God makes a prophecy about a place called Persia a hundred years before Persia is given the name Persia. Sometimes, if God so chooses, he can name the place ever before it happens. He names a person, Cyrus, 150 years before he's born, and he tells us what this King Cyrus is going to do. But very often, God in his wisdom, knowing the way we repeatedly change, change names, he uses the names that he does for a reason. Take the place called Byzantium. Byzantium was the capital of the Roman Empire under the Emperor Constantine. He moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium, and when he does that, of course, he renames it after himself, and he calls it Constantinople. About 1,500 years later, the Muslims conquer that land, and they name it Istanbul, and that's what it's called today. Or take, for instance, in Russia, there was a city by the name of Petrograd. Uh, It was later called St. Petersburg, but when the communists came in under Lenin, they renamed it Leningrad, but it's gone back to the name St. Petersburg. So we are forever changing the names of people in places. But God in his wisdom will take the names of one's ancestors so that you cannot miss it. 
Uh, so if you're going to talk about a people biblically, you usually trace them back to the ancestry name. Here's a chart that might be helpful to you for a moment. Here's Noah. If you remember, Noah comes off the ark with six other people, including his wife, for a total of eight. He has three sons who are married. His three sons are named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can see Shem has five sons. Ham has four sons. Japheth has seven sons. Now, I preach through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, and most pastors skip chapter 10. They just say, well, this is the table of nations. I painfully, and you endured it, preached through Genesis 10. And I told you, you may think this is just filler, but there's no filler in Scripture. Every word is given by the breath of God. And I told you that if you choose to study the whole of Bible, which I am committed to teaching, that you will go back time and time and time again to Genesis 10, as I find myself doing. Why? Because you can trace every people on the planet today to Genesis chapter 10, to the table of nations. You can see one of Japheth's sons is a guy by the name of Magog. And of course, Josephus and other external documents tell us that Magog was the predecessor to the Greek people called the Scythians. Uh, people don't debate that today. That's a firm historical fact. And of course, the Scythians lived in a region of the world that was the belly of the former Soviet Union, all the stand countries, so to speak. Now, in the next diagram, again, you can see there are three major battles. There's the battle of Gog and Magog. That takes place after a time of peace. Then there's the battle of Armageddon that happens at the end of the seventh year, right before the second coming of Christ. And then there's the thousand-year reign of our Lord, where the devil is chained and bound in the abyss. But at the end of the thousand years, he is loosed. And we will see, because there's even a battle that is attempted, they don't fire the first bullet, Jesus just ends it, but they attempt to come against God's Messiah who's been ruling on the throne. We will see that that is one of many proofs for a pre-tribulational rapture, because as Matthew 13 indicates, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, he removes every vestige of every unbeliever he's removed. And so the only people who enter into the kingdom are believers. But the curse is lifted off the creation. They'll live for a long period of time. They have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren. They'll live long periods of time, like in the days of Noah. And some of their children will amass with the devil's supervision against God's Messiah. Now, understand this first battle comes after a time of peace, and it's again exactly what Daniel predicted. The man will come and he will make a covenant. It's what the rest of the New Testament says, while they're saying peace and safety, suddenly destruction will come. There'll be war across the planet, and the first war is the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, Israel, since the time of the Gentiles that began with Nebuchadnezzar, this is one of the reasons we studied the prophet Daniel, since the time of the Babylonian invasion, which began the time of the Gentiles, they've never had peace. They don't have peace today. They've got to build up walls everywhere because people all around them and even within their own borders hate the Jewish people. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
We're in that time frame. It began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it will go all the way until the second coming of Christ. Now, by contrast, the battle of Armageddon does not encompass just a region, a section of Israel, the northern part. It encompasses the whole of Israel. So those are two distinct battles. Now, you can read Ezekiel the prophet, and if you haven't read him before, go home and at least read chapters 38 and 39. It's an incredible war. And God wins. All these people come against Israel, but God supernaturally pulls off the battle where they win. And we're going to study in a moment six allies who come against Israel. That's different from Armageddon, where all the nations of the world come against Israel. So to put it again in a visual for you, you can see that this battle of Gog and Magog happens after the peace covenant is broken in the first half of the tribulation period. Now, you might be thinking, why should I even care about the battle of Gog and Magog, and why are you taking time to cover it? Two reasons. Number one, because every administration since Harry Truman has attempted to make their mark by establishing peace within the nation of Israel. You think that's an accident? Do you think Trump, as soon as he gets in office, he, like all the presidents before him, wants to make peace with Israel? I mean, do you know of any other nation on the face of the earth that some American president and the United Nations will gather to discuss peace in the Middle East? It's not by accident. It's because the hand of a sovereign God who used the Hebrew people to bring in the first coming, he is going to use the Hebrew people to bring in the second coming. And so God is very, very clear. This is an, a, an important event, but there's a second reason you should be interested, and it's for the simple reason the nations that are named here that are involved. Who are these six nations? Here's the map again. Bring it up, if you will. These nations, again, you can learn who they are by their ancestral names. And while these places today do not carry these same titles, you can isolate based on the table of nations, the Septuagint, and other outside literature, the exact geographical regions that we are speaking of. Up here in the north is a place called Rosh. It's Russia. No one debates that, that Rosh is Russia. Not because it sounds like Russia. It doesn't work that way. You could take other names, and some have sloppily done that. Well, this must be this city. And so it just happens to be that the Hebrew word Rosh sounds like Russia. In either case, that's not the basis of our identification. There's a place here on the map, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Togarma. If you go to Turkey today, you're going to discover that there are some ethnic groups, namely these four, that make up the country we call Turkey. Turkey, like Russia, is going to come against Israel in this battle of Gog and Magog. Here's a recent demonstration in Turkey burning the Israeli flag. Uh, the United Nations in their report indicates that 86% of the Turkish people say they hate Israel while only 2% say they are in favor of Israel. And it's not by accident that Turkey is closely aligned today with Russia. Here's another country. It's called Persia. Persia became the modern nation of Iran in 1935, and its name was changed to the Islamic Republic of Iran, Iran 
1979. And here is one of the weekly rallies. This happened just a few weeks ago. Maybe you don't follow the rallies. I tend to. I like to know what's going on in Iran. And here they are calling America the great Satan along with Israel. They want Israel destroyed. They write on their bombs in Hebrew the destruction of Israel. They are not Israel's friend, and they are certainly not the friend of the United States. Magog is in Central Asia. They represent an area geographically that comprises 100 million people. Uh, they again represent the Stans, Kakistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan. In fact, the unifying thread in these nations is the Quran. These are Muslim nations. Here's Kush. You see them on the map. Kush is modern-day Sudan. Here's a fo photo of Sudan. In Sudan, uh, here's an Iranian ship at its port. The country of Sudan repeatedly allows the Iranians to come and put their battleships there. Uh, it's a very uh, Islamic place today, and they too hate Israel. It was this country, Sudan, that for five years housed uh, Osama bin Laden and gave him protection, and they were a hardline uh, nation against Israel. Again, back to our map, you will see put. Put is modern-day Libya. Libya, of course, is where Gaddafi came from. And when he was alive, he fed the Libyan people a doctrine that they should despise and hate Israel. And of course, Libya believes that through a united uh, Muslim uh, federation of nations that they will be successful in going against Israel. Now, of course, the question that often comes up on the Bible line from time to time is, well, where's America in all of this? Why aren't they coming to the aid of Israel? Why aren't they involved in this great war of Gog and Magog? Well, we're not told, but I think there are many possibilities as to why America is not engaged in this war. Number one, after the rapture of the church, all the evangelical born-again Christians will be gone. Who do you think got Trump into office among other groups? It was the evangelical Christian. And the only reason evangelicals voted for him for the most part was one for Supreme Court picks, and number two, because he said he was pro-Israel. Now that remains to be seen just how pro-Israel he is. But when all the evangelical Christians are gone, who is going to push the government to be in favor of Israel? And then, of course, there's something that has happened, and I will document it for you in some subsequent weeks. There's a new wind that is happening in evangelical camps. I'm not talking about just those in Reformed theology who say the church is the new Israel, but in traditional evangelical camps that was in support of Israel. And so there's a new movement. They have an annual conference every year in Bethlehem, and it's a movement of Christians, so-called evangelical Christians, to go against Israel. And I will share with you some of the colleges, like Wheaton College, who support this conference in some of the evangelical seminaries that are now beginning to go against Israel. The wind is changing. Now, I don't know why America is not mentioned. Again, maybe because there's no evangelicals. Maybe because they have so many problems of their own in this day. Again, the restraining influence of the Spirit is gone. 
There'll be race wars. There'll be violence like the days of Noah across America. It might be that our military has all they can do just to maintain peace here. We do not know why America does not rush to defend Israel at this time. And we do know at the end of the seven years, America and all the nations will go specifically against Israel. Now, remember, Ezekiel the prophet lives 600 years before Jesus ever steps out of heaven in human flesh. If you've read the prophet, the first 32 chapters describe the judgment that they are experiencing in his day. He is an exilic prophet. The Jewish people are away under judgment in Babylon, and he's describing what they are experiencing and why they are experiencing. But he gives them a sense of hope. He looks out into the latter days to the end of time. And so beginning in Ezekiel 33 through chapter 48, he describes, one, the physical regathering of Israel. Remember, we studied it last time, at least I briefly mentioned it, that when the Romans finally dealt with all the Jews, they made it illegal for a Hebrew person to set foot in the country they renamed Palestine after one of their enemies. And so for nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people were not there. But it was God's land that he gave to the Jewish people. In either case, in the late 19th century, in the 1890s, there was a movement of Orthodox Jews who said, we need to go back to our land. And in 1890, there's 25,000 Jews in Israel. Under the rule of Hitler, where they are welcomed nowhere in the world, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And in 1948, surrounded by 100 million Arabs, there are 600,000 Jews. The prophet Isaiah said the nation would be reborn. They would become a nation in one day. And on May the 14th, 1948, God fulfilled that prophecy, and he keeps bringing the Hebrew people back. There are 6.5 million people there today, and it's all in fulfillment of what Ezekiel writes, the regathering. But he also speaks, once they are physically regathered, they're also going to be spiritually renewed. And the promise of the new covenant that we experience today as born-again Christians will come to the people of Israel. Not to mention the population keeps growing. They're not like us. They have more children than we do as Americans. 174,000 new babies are born every year by the Hebrew people. God gathers them physically. He rejuvenates them spiritually. And this prophecy is amazing because 600 years before it is written, there is no formal alliance with any of these countries. Yet at the end of time, And we're already witnessing the alliances of these nations today. God is going to bring them into the Middle East. All right, that brings us to the third rider. You say, I thought you'd never get there. That's the introduction. Hmm. You say, we're going to be here all afternoon. Well, let's see how committed you are, right? All right, so we come now to the black horse of of destitution, the black horse of destitution. And it's marked by three things. First, it's a time marked by shortages. We read in verse 5, when he broke the third seal... I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken and another rider makes his appearance. And this slide indicates we're still again in the first three and a half years. A black horse, the color black, both historically and biblically, is a color that is associated with mourning and with famine. 
Just as the white horse symbolizes peace, just as the red horse symbolizes blood and war, even so the black horse symbolizes mourning and the hunger that's associated with that mourning. How do I know that? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I can give you biblical examples. You might want to jot down a few. Jeremiah chapter 14. There the prophet said, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They, meaning the gates, sit on the ground in mourning. Literally, the Hebrew roots, they, the gates, are black for the land. They're black for the land. That's a little odd rendering of the Hebrew, and we don't understand that idiom, but the people did in Jeremiah's day, so we tend to interpret it. Though the King James just literally translates it, doesn't uh, it, it, do, it literally interprets it, doesn't translate the idiom for you. And so the King James says that the gates are black onto the ground. It reads just like the Hebrew. You say, well, I'm not sure what that means. And so usually the goal of a translator is they put it into the vernacular of the language in the century in which people are using. There are some idioms that we don't use today. We used to use the idiom, sufficient is the evil unto the day thereof. We don't use that. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, today, we'd say every day has enough trouble of its own, all right? So, uh, in essence, to interpret or to paraphrase the idiom, Jeremiah is saying the people, they appear in public as dejected, they mourn, uh, they, they mourn, they put on black, it's a time of national distress. Then he says, verse 3, their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns, that's where you stored the water, like a big well, and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame, and they covered their heads. And so, again, black that's used here in the Hebrew Bible and in the King James, it's a symbol of mourning. Mourning over what? Mourning over the famine. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. Here's another example. Same prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. You know, Jeremiah, he's a crying prophet. He laments. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And so in describing this awful day of thirst and lack of bread, he said, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. I gave it to you right out of the King James. It's a beautiful picture. Again, we don't use that idiom, but again, it is emphasizing the mourning associated with famine. Here's another example, Joel chapter 2, verse 6. In describing starvation and drought, the prophet writes, before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. That's how the NAS puts it. The King James reads more literally to the Hebrew, but an idiom we don't understand today. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. Now, normally, like in the book of Solomon, black is beautiful. But here, it's used as a symbol of heartache, of mourning that comes from famine. To listen again to today's look at the rider on the black horse, part of our study in the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 
787-748-7478 and requesting program REV16. And when you contact us, why not consider helping us in our mission of reaching those who don't know Christ and in growing those who do in their relationship with Him. Just click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a one-time gift or about becoming a foundation partner. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the Black Horse of Destitution. Join us then as we search the scriptures.